This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Coming to you with the regularity of a Saxon Ring Turn 1 crash, this is the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast, clothed and attired by Fly Racing. Get your street bike riding goods at flyracing.com, as well as some of the coolest and best off-road gear. I was using the Fly Formula helmet with Rion Safety Tech inside for the Stark Varg launch recently. Awesome stuff. Also, a big thanks to Rental Street. Again, not only an off-road supreme brand, but also excellent road bike products from bars, grips, sprockets, chains, and a wealth of other options to upgrade your ride. My name is Adam Wheeler. I'm back on hosting duty as we've lost Steve English somewhere on the Emerald Isle, but back home in the Netherlands and soon to be bothered by all sorts of people, which might account for his scour on our video call today, is uh, MrMotorMatters.com and analyst, analyst supreme of MotoGP, Mr. David Emmett. Hi, Dave. Hello, Adam. Uh, yeah, I am quite looking forward to my uh, home round, but it is always like the busiest round on the face of the planet. And from the bowels of Berlin, we shouldn't ignore the growl of Motor 2 and Motor 3 commentary and one of the finest writers in his family. Also the busy <laughs> MotoGP media centre, Neil Morrison. Hello, Neil. Hello, Adam. Actually, in the bowels of Amsterdam, not in Berlin. I took the train yesterday, so uh, I've swapped uh, 35 degrees of Germany for the rather more pleasant and manageable 18 of uh, Amsterdam. You're on the tour of uh, European, major European cities, I can see. It's better than Barcelona because the humidity here is is unreal. Um, first of all, gents, uh, how many Frankfurts did we eat in total over the weekend? Because uh, the, way, the rate that they were shifting in the media center is for free food to the journalists was pretty amazing. Neil, I think you had a good old scoff on the first day, didn't you? Yeah, I was uh, light on lunch and uh, therefore uh, the stomach was rumbling around 4 p.m. So I... Uh... I dabbled in the uh, in the Frankfurter and uh, immediately regretted it, um, and regretted it also later in the night when I woke up and uh, had a spot of uh, food poisoning during the night. So um, yeah, I think the the kind of the, the consumption rate at which um, the German photographers were making their way through that um, thing of Frankfurters was probably more exciting than the rest. Not something to be honest. <laughs> well, they, I mean, it was also impressive, really, the timing of it. I mean, they were tucking in like 8 a.m. Um, a Frankfurt for breakfast is indeed a bold move. There are a lot of uh, journalists, a lot of photojournalists over the weekend. And for my moment, guys, from the Grand Prix in Saxon Ring we just visited was uh, the crowds. Uh, there was a lot of German, a lot of a lot of fans generally. Um, Dave, you and I spoke about this on the Powder Pass podcast note show. It's hard to deduce whether a lot of the crowds were hanging on to their tickets that they should have had for 2020. But, you know, to see MotoGP, you know, after a couple of races where we thought, well, the crowds have been slightly disappointing, uh, the, the grandstands haven't been full, Mugello being the most notable example, even though there was still an atmosphere there, it was fantastic to see what was, what was essentially a full house. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, it was just a fantastic atmosphere. Um, uh, it was also really well managed as well. Like there were no uh, real or there were very few uh, traffic problems. Uh, traffic was sort of managed quite well. Um, there was, uh, yeah, fantastic atmosphere. That There were quite a, a number of people on 2020 tickets. But the thing is, I think what it really shows is the difference between, you know, like... Uh, uh, 
staging an event and staging a race. At Mugello, you go to you go for the race. Uh, Saxon Ring is an entire weekend. There's you know bands everywhere. There's fireworks. There's a fairground. There's uh, just sort of everything going on. A lot like Le Mans. A lot like Aston. Uh, and for me, uh, and a lot like Silverstone. For me, like th- that's the way forward for MotoGP to create like a weekend, um, uh, a, a real experience rather than just forty five minutes of racing on a Sunday afternoon. You could say that the ticket prices may have affected, uh, you know, the attendance in Mugello, um, but you know, there certainly didn't seem to be a big problem in Saxon Ring, where especially on the track, the German fans haven't had a lot to shout about. I mean, Marcel Schrotter's had a podium in Moto Two before; he was fighting for the podium again last Sunday. Uh, you know, Stefan Brado, of course, was replacing Mark Marquez for HRC, but. You know, perhaps since Jonas Folger looked quite lively in MotoGP, the German fans haven't had great cause to buy a ticket to head there for a chance of racing success. So it makes, you know, the whole atmosphere and like you say, everything that much more impressive. Uh, Neil, what kind of stood out for you either on the track or off the track from uh, round 10? Um, I thought it was, a, I guess it was a decent race, not the most exciting up front, obviously. Um, with Quartararo um, streaking clear for another win, um, his second dominant win in succession. I was impressed with uh, Johan Zarko's early pass on Alicia Sparrow at the waterfall. I thought that was uh, the standout moment from certainly the MotoGP race. Um, I think it came on uh, two or three, um, a pretty epic um, move under Alicia at the, the downhill turn 11, probably the one of the scariest corners on the entire calendar. And um, you know, I think it uh, Zarko was sort of going under the radar as one of the more impressive performances this year, up to third in the championship, now the top Ducati overall. And um, I think he's showing exactly why it looks as though Ducati are keen to keep him in Pramac next year. Dave, what was your highlight from the Licky Molly Motorrad Grand Prix Deutschland? Deutschland. Um, uh, yes, uh, the, uh, th- that pass by uh, Zarko really was just a- a- exceptional, really, really good. Uh, but for me, the standout moment was Pekka Banyar crashing out for no apparent reason. Um, it's sort of been the story of his season so far uh, uh a lot of crashes some his fault some not his fault but there was no real reason for him to to go the rear just he, you know he was settling in to chase fabio quartararo um and the rear just came round of him on a on him at, at turn one and and he was down and it was over and he was just sort of standing there screaming at his uh bike i think mostly because he understood the sort of the size of his error afterwards he said he didn't understand why uh, why he crashed um but i mean there's lots of reasons he was racing the hard rear it was the start of the race it took a little time while well, for, for the for the rear to, to or for the especially the right side of the rear to get up to temperature uh we just had the motor two race so there was a, a bit less grip uh it was very very hot uh, very high track temperatures, so there was lots of reasons for him to have crashed. Um, but for me, it was it just sort of like summed up his well, it, it summed up his season. It summed up the MotoGP season. You know, Fabio Quartararo uh, cruises off into the distance, uh, while behind him, chaos uh, ensues. I mean, Quartararo is just looking better and better and better, isn't he? I mean, that was his eleventh MotoGP win, the first for Yamaha since two thousand and nine at the Saxon Ring. Uh I mean, Pekka Bonaya had an amazing second half of the season last year. He's going to have to go above and beyond that to peg back, I think, 90 points now, the, the distance in the championship. It's it's not impossible, of course. And Quattararo, you would imagine, needs to have a couple of races where uh, he doesn't have visors flipping open or any other kind of dramas that really kind of mark some of the events from last year. 
but at the start of the year, we seem slightly foolish now, guys, for wondering if Quattararo was in big trouble because he was finishing not even in the top five. Uh, people were asking questions about his future with Yamaha. The bike was underdeveloped, uh, under under speed. Uh, it was you know lacking in many areas, but now he's he's really hitting a vein of form. Uh, without Mark Marquez at Saxon Ring, took victory and head into Assen. I mean, I would be pretty frightened if I was uh, maybe Alessia Spargaro and you know, or somebody with designs on the World Championship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really it, it's hard to overstate just how strong Fabio Quartararo is looking at the moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, Pekka Banyai's championship is over. Um, Ten races left, ninety points behind. That's nine points a race, which is the difference between first and second place, or first and third place. I beg your pardon. Uh, can we so say that, that though, Dave? Can can we really say it's over? Uh, I, I mean, mean it, it, he, didn't he pull back like seventy-seven points or something last year? Yeah, well, I mean, I hate to point this out to you, Adam, but seventy-seven is um, uh, less than ninety. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's not fair. I mean, it, it's not fair. I mean, it's, it's never over until it's over, and you can't look at it as it being over until it's over. But the point is, um, the only way that Fabio Quartararo or the, the Pekka Banyar can now win the championship is if uh, Fabio Quartararo makes a mistake. He has to make at least one mistake. He needs help from other um, uh, from other riders uh, because, like I say, it's the difference between finishing. If uh, Banyar wins the rest of the races and uh, uh, Quasaro finishes third then um, uh, I, I can't remember if it's 19 or what 90 or 91 race but then, but, but then alright you know he, he's in with a chance he, he's capable of winning uh, but that relies on someone else getting in between uh, between Banyaya and Quattararo. And if you're in that situation, uh, you're needing help is never a good a you know it's never a good position to to be in. But then you know, who knows? Maybe Fabio Quattararo will uh, uh, fall off a bicycle and break his wrist just before the start of the, for example, the, the Aragon triple header, and then all of a sudden that's a whole lot of light uh, uh, um, points. Uh, gone and it might come back again but it's not in it's not in Banyai's hand now that is that I think is the biggest issue you know like it, it really is between uh, Alessia Spargaro and and Fabio Quattararo right now I mean or he could be on a bicycle and crash into a van and break his wrist Dave uh, you know that's a, that's yeah. another possibility uh, the, the championship is something I'd like to talk about really because uh, if you're Ducati senior management and you have eight riders on the grid in 2022 uh you have obviously invested perhaps more than you've ever invested in MotoGP. uh you have pekka bagnaia as your main threat or your main hope for the title and then he crashes out a race where he set lap records um you know could have given ducati i think their first win at the track since casey stoner i mean what, what's what's going through the minds of people like you know paolo giabati and and you know Gigi dalinga right now are they are they livid with bagnaya are they kind of dropping their heads thinking this is over we've lost it for another year we're master of, of invention and you know contraptions and advances in MotoGP, gp but we can't seem to launch a valid title threat i think they are probably very frustrated um just because you know this was you looked at the end of last year and I mean, Ducati looked as well poised to kick on from an absolutely dominant end to 2021 as I think they've ever uh, had the chance of doing. And um, yeah, they were going to add more bikes to the grid um, with the addition of the Grassini squad. And you just thought, well, like higher Yamaha, Suzuki, are the other manufacturers going to even get a look in? Um, and I have this thing where I think it's now 16 races in succession. We've had Ducati riders on the podium, at least one Ducati rider. The thing is, 
it's uh, rarely the same Ducati rider in succession. Um, and they just can't manage to get any sort of consistency together. But Nia, I think they have to feel some frustration because, okay, he was taken out of the race in Barcelona and that was misfortune. But he crashed from his own mistake in France. He crashed from his own mistake in Germany. He was minimum going to finish second in those races. Um, you know, he has thrown huge big points away and you could kind of make a, a bit of an exception at the start of the year because you got the impression that they were still developing the GP22. He maybe wasn't so happy with how their working method was. But I mean, in Germany on Friday, he said the bike is absolutely perfect. I don't want my engineers and my crew to touch anything. And you felt, okay, this is, it's all set up. You've got the bike. Now you go and do it. And, um, you know, another, another mistake was uh, his undoing. So I would say there's a massive, massive amount of frustration in Ducati HQ. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, it is. It, it really does come down to picking the right rider because, like, in every single factory, the rule is uh, the rider who's winning gets the new bits, or or they get the choice of the new bits. They get the choice. They get to control the destiny of what's going on. Um, but right now, there isn't really a clear leader. There, Ducati has lots and lots of really, really great riders, but they don't have anyone who can put it together. And I thought that the fact uh, that Peko really summed it up nicely, saying. Fabio is a more complete rider than me. Uh, and when he was asked, like, what do you mean by complete? He doesn't make mistakes. And the, that's just absolutely what's going on. You know, Quattararo was not making a mistake. And uh, the, the Ducati riders keep on finding ways to trip themselves up. Um, I think that's going to be the biggest problem for uh, Ducati. We saw that, I mean, you know, we see the risks of of this you know focusing on one rider because you know look at honda um mark marcus is gone and the bike is absolute i mean literally nowhere they they, they scored no points uh, for the first time in 40 years which is just astonishing um but yeah it's uh it's it, it it's a risk to Focus just on one ride, and I think that that is what Ducati need to do: is is to pick a winner. They they haven't picked a winner since the last time they won a championship. Well, I know uh, Neil, this is something you want to talk about a little bit later in the podcast. Um, I mean, the last time Ducati did win a championship, they took a chance on a young Australian who was renowned for being a bit of a crasher in the Premier class, and you know they obviously spotted some genius and made the whole thing work together. But uh, maybe Pekka Bonai has too much pressure on his shoulders. Um, you know, Jack Miller's had a few moments of bad luck, but there always seems to be something that throws his championship off kilter. Uh, you know, you're relying then on a rider like Johan Saku, as Dave, you mentioned before, is essentially a test guinea pig for Ducati. Um, and then Ducati have this fantastic collection of riders, you know, a hell of a lot of potential there. Um, I mean, I think Marco Bezecchi is in, in the race, leading the race for Rookie of the Year. Uh, but then they, like you say, they just don't have um, a really solid class rider that should be, that say someone, the Ilk of Paulo Spargaro, who should be, or Brad Binder, that will be pushing up and giving Bagnaia maybe some assistance and, and taking some of the, the pressure and the glare off of him. The, the, the trouble is you go through all of these riders and um, there isn't anyone who looks like they can put a, a season together. Uh, I mean, Pekka Banyal won a Moto2 championship, I think. Um, but still, he hasn't shown that he's able to put everything together over an entire season. What he is capable of doing is putting together sort of long runs. Uh, and his talent is just beyond beyond question. 
Um, there's, there's just no question that he is absolutely capable of fast. The, you know, the, the fact that he destroyed the the, the lap record uh, that he got into the one nineteens is is a sign of just how fast he, he's capable of pushing that bike. Uh, the, the the fact that he could go on a run of wins at the end of last year shows you how good he is. But um, there, you know, seasons are seasons are long, and I think that is the biggest problem for for, for Ducati right now is they don't have anyone who understands just how long a MotoGP season is. Do you think that's why they're also holding back a little bit on announcing who will be Bagnaia's teammate next year? I mean, the two main candidates are under contract. They shouldn't have a problem announcing them and making making a big song and dance about it, but they're they're kind of stalling, for want of a better word. Uh, Maybe they don't don't have an obvious candidate. I think it's understandable. Um, I mean, you could say they're stalling, but um, I mean, after France, you could say, okay, it's got to be Bastianini because Martin's having a really tough time. Bastianini at that stage, he just won his third race of the season, looked like a title contender. But then look at what Bastianini's done since then. I mean, the the, the three races that we've had since Le Mans um, have been really poor. I think he scored just six points across uh, three races from a possible um, 75. Also, you know, Jorge Martin had some extenuating circumstances. He had issues with his right arm going numb, um, which was affecting, um, well, affected his French Grand Prix. Um, he wasn't entirely happy with the GP22, and we know that he's using a different engine from the factory squad, and it took him a while to get comfortable with that. So I think they're doing the right thing. They're saying, you know what, let's take, uh, I think they said, um, Paolo Giovatti said in the Saxon ring, they'll leave the decision until uh, after the second race in August, which I guess is after um, Austria. So yeah, that's another couple of races for these guys to go out and show their value. Maybe it's a chance for Martin to regain his physical fitness completely. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, Ducati have rushed into these kind of decisions before, and then it's maybe proved to be not the most intelligent move. Jorge Lorenzo stands out. Maybe you could even say Danilo Petrucci as well. Um, so yeah, I think they're they're entirely justified to take the time because this is a big decision. Yeah, but I mean, if we are going to be very, very brutal about this, um, they're, they're choosing between you know two versions of essentially the same rider, uh, a rider who is incredibly talented, both Bastianini and Martin, both incredibly talented, incredibly fast, really, really capable, uh, but both deeply flawed. Both, both keep on making mistakes. They keep on crashing. Uh, and what do we have uh, with the uh, number one rider in Ducati, a rider who is incredibly fast, incredibly talented, and keeps on making mistakes and crashing? Uh, and they have Jack Miller, who they're saying goodbye to, who, again, is a really incredibly talented rider uh, who just can't be consistent. And they have in Pramac, they've got a very consistent rider in Joan Zarco, uh, but he is yet to win a race. Um, uh, the, the Luca Marini is looking really, really promising and solid. Uh, but he's taking some time, you know. Oh, is he going to finally make the breakthrough? Is he going to get on the podium? Is he going to start winning races? They're, they're in a difficult situation. I can't see them winning a championship this year. I can't see them winning a championship next year, uh, especially if Mark Marquez comes back fit. Um, they need, they, well, they either need. Pekka Banyai to make another step in terms of consistency uh, or one of the other eyes to make a, a, a consistency but they really need to create a much more stable platform um, uh, around a particular rider and that includes the rider the rider themselves needs to be incredibly sta- stable and that seems to be their biggest problem right now 
Yeah, Jones Zarco in particular, like we said, he may have a different brief. I don't think Ducati uh, is saying to him, please go and win the championship for us. I mean, I think he's up to 15 podiums now without a victory in the Premier class. Uh, you know, he's clearly not the youngest rider in the Ducati stable. But, um, you know, there are times when you look at him, you look at his results and think, well, if he continues on that path, much in the same way as Alessia Spargaro, then he's, he's going to be in the mix. But then, you know, Zarco has this trait of, kind of disappearing into the mid top 10 obscurity for a couple of races yeah exactly it's kind of worth pointing out that this time last year Johan Zarko was right in the championship hunt and we were thinking oh you know Zarko could actually be a bit of a challenger this year and then I think he had an absolutely disastrous double header in Austria and yeah just had a pretty anonymous spell of races I mean um, yeah, he was 6th retired in Austria last year he was 11th at Silverstone 17th at Aragon 12th at Misano um and, you know, I think historically, even when you look back to his time uh, with uh, Tech 3 Yamaha, uh, this midpoint of the season after Aston, you know, decent run of the tracks for him, does tend to be slightly anonymous at those tracks. So um, I don't think you can you can look at Zarko really and think that he's going to be a guy that can take it to Quartarão. I a quick sort of um, question or point which has just sort of popped into my head. I remember after the first four races, the first flyaways, we were all saying, you know, do we do we have to take the these results seriously? Do they mean anything? Um, at the time, it was like, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, that's a lot of points on the board. And now looking back after at the at the halfway mark, it doesn't. It looks like those first four races were pretty meaningless. I mean, you know, they didn't really mean very very much. In the there was no pattern to them. There was no regularity. Uh, they've not had a great deal of impact in the rest of the season. Apart from a brilliant. Uh, oh, uh, that's a uh, that's a very good point. I think it was definitely yeah. No, that's a very good point. I take it back. It uh, uh, it, it was a sign that Aprilia are for real, uh, but in terms of you know Ducati, Yamaha, how the rest of it's played out, it's not really meant much. Yeah, don't let any more of those thoughts pop into your brain, Dave. Uh, you know, let's try and keep the, the podcast on a steady keel. Uh, on that note, you know, we're halfway through the MotoGP season, but we're a third of the way through this podcast, so we're going to stop quickly for an ad break, and when we get back, we'll be into a couple more talking points. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 Glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Neil, you wanted to talk a little bit about whether brands are heading in the right direction strategically and it's actually following on from what we were saying about Ducati really with their collection of riders and then other brands are really struggling to I mean look at Yamaha for example uh, they have a guy who's amazing on one motorcycle but Franco Morbidelli uh, Fabio Quattararo's teammate again finishing I say again I'll have to look into the stats a little bit more later but 30 seconds adrift of his teammate I mean that is that is a, a serious wedge of time yeah I mean um, I think uh yeah, just to follow on what we were talking about in the first part of the show, really, um, I think this action ring and this season to an extent has reopened the debate as to whether, you know, factories are right or to put all of their eggs in one basket or whether they should try and distribute their eggs evenly among uh, a talented pool of riders. Um, and, um, you know, I think there's obviously uh, two ways to come at this, but um, the bottom line is that uh, the rider or the, the factory currently that has put 
all of their eggs behind one rider is uh, looking very, very likely to uh, win a second championship in succession with that strategy. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to argue with that. It's it, it's really really obvious. I think um, uh, Fabio has 172 points, and the other three uh, uh, Yamaha riders combined have 45, which is a shocking statistic, really. Um, uh, but it's the same as Honda. Yeah, I mean Honda won a whole lot of uh, championships just with a bike that that one rider could uh, could use to its full potential. Um, but like I was saying, I think it's it's also about finding the right rider. I mean, like Fabio has found, um, uh, has created, Fabio has an environment around him because, it, again, Lynn Jarvis has uh, positively praised the people which Fabio uh, uh, has around him. He's praised um, his crew chief, praised his, his data engineer, said that is a fantastic team. Uh, who are really good at analysing things, pulling it apart, thinking about it, and uh, making it. It's a little bit with um, Valentini Rossi in his prime. Everyone talks about his relationship with his crew chief, Jeremy Burgess. I think also his relationship with Matteo Flamini, his data guy, was another uh, another really, really key relationship where together they really they, they really built something. They really um, they could understand at each particular step what they needed to uh, what they needed to do um and it feels like i mean you know pekka benya has christian gabarini who's no stranger to world championships he knows exactly how to win a championship uh, and he's an incredibly intelligent guy and he's a really really good crew chief um but, but benya needs a bit, something else as well he needs a bit more help somewhere um to point him in the right direction to give him the uh, the, the stability that he needs like i say it, it's this sort of you know it's having an absolutely rock solid foundation from which you can launch, uh, uh, you can launch a challenge. And I think that seems to be what is missing in Ducati most of all. I think it's a risk, um, uh, putting all your eggs in one basket with, with Quartararo, but it's also the quickest, the cheapest and the easiest way to win a championship. You know, give the rider who is winning more of what he wants, um, and let him go on with it. It's probably the most simplistic way, um, and also in terms of budget. But, uh, you know, I don't believe the brands are thinking we've got a fantastic star in Mark Marquez and Fabio Quattararo. We're just going to build a bike for them and, and the three or four others that we're, we're paying X amount of millions to accumulatively. Uh, will have to crack on and do the best they can. I mean, it's been, you know, the Yamaha was stereotyped as the easiest bike to ride in the Premier class for a couple of years now. So... It's hard to believe a rider of ability of somebody like Andrea Davizioso or, or Franco Morbidelli are not able to really use that. I mean, somebody like Darren Binder can come in and do reasonably well and, and progress quite quickly with that package. But it, it's, I mean, the Yamaha situation is a mystery. Um, we know Maverick Mignales uh, was able to use it, such as coming to the Dutch Grand Prix last year, uh, or the Dutch TT, sorry, Dave. Um, you know, and, At the Cathedral. Oh God! It only took like half an hour to get that done. Um, you know, I just uh, Maverick was his own enigma, let's say. Uh, but you know, the bike was clearly competitive, and Morbidelli was doing fantastic results on a two-year-old version of the machine. So uh, it's, it's it's really there must be a lot more going into it, of course. Yeah, I think you know the part of it. Um, you know, the fact that Morbidelli spent so much time away from the championship last year, recovering from an injury. I think we haven't really seen the same Franco uh, since. He made that injury come back. 
Um, and it's, it's been a case of him trying to work his way up to speed and find his confidence again. Davizioso, you could argue, is in the, the final stage of his career and perhaps a little bit too old now to really turn his riding style around after what was such a different you know, years on basically the exact opposite kind of bike. Um, but you look at um, you look at the kind of uh, the approaches of the, the, the different factories during preseason, Yamaha and Ducati. I think coming away from preseason, we thought Yamaha had had a terrible time. In some ways, they had. They didn't really develop their bike at all. It was more or less the same. It had the exact same handicaps that it had at the end of last year when it was getting outgunned towards the end of the season. And Ducati were slowly building. Um, I think Yamaha noticed when they um, brought their 2022 engine, and I think it maybe wasn't the most reliable thing. thing so they thought, you know what, we're going to have to go with the same package as what we had before. They knew that the package they had before, as long as Fabio had a kind of comfortable feeling with the front end of that bike, then he was still able to take it to its absolute limits and they could maybe roll the, the dice and figure that that might be good enough. Um, you think about Ducati at the end of last year, you know, you'd say Pekka Bonilla was in his absolute sweet spot after the Valencian Grand Prix. He was talking about how they already had the perfect bike, yet they went and made some changes and introduced the front ride height device and, you know, things that really seemed to um, put him off course for the first couple of races. And, um, I mean, you can't criticise Ducati for wanting to continue to innovate, but you have to wonder if they had only made minor changes to their the bike that they had at the end of last year for this year. You know, maybe Bonnier could have been, you know, could have come into the season full of confidence and not on the back foot. I mean, he's pretty much been on the back foot um, since race one. I mean, he scored one point in the first two races, and from there he's been playing catch-up constantly. I, I mean, the interesting thing is that it shows how much of a rider's championship this still is. The rider really still can make the difference. The fact that uh, Fabio Quartararo can so drastically outscore all other riders on Yamahas. The same with uh, uh, the same with Mark Marquez at Honda. It shows you that the rider is still the biggest part of the package. It's still the most important part of the package. Um, and so, in the end. Uh, yes, of course, manufacturers want to show off their uh, their uh, uh, you know they want to showcase their engineering. But the best best way of showcasing their engineering is by winning championships. Uh, and if that means just throwing money at a uh, particularly talented rider, ignoring the rest of them, then that's fine. They will still take you know they'll still take the credit. There's still going to be you know uh, posters of Fabio Quartararo riding a Yamaha all over Yamaha dealerships uh, um, uh, the, for all of this year and probably all of next year as well uh, uh so yeah that you know they will take that credit no matter how much it belongs to them i think it's a really interesting point about um uh, what neil was saying it would have been better to uh, maybe it would be better for Ducati to 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 just sort of you know tweak the gp21 rather than throw more tech at the gp22 obviously a complete opposite coming at this argument from a different side there are Real perils if you take this approach of putting all your eggs in one basket. And where is it better summed up than Honda right now? I mean, scoring zero points in the Grand Prix for the first time since I think the French Grand Prix in 1982. That was a risk that they didn't even start because there was a boycott due to track safety. Um, I mean, their situation it 
couldn't really be any worse for my mother, could it? <laughs> it's, it's really great. Yeah, but I mean, they're probably crying into the uh, six championship trophies they won between 2013 and 2019. So, um, uh, the, oh, the, the, all with one rider. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's still there. You know, like they, they won the Triple Crown in 2019. Well, they, I say they, and obviously I mean Mark Marquez won the Triple Crown in 2019 pretty much on his own. Uh, yeah, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't forget yeah. that contribution. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Whereas uh, Mark scored a mere, what was it, 400 or something. Uh, it was uh, some ridiculous amount. But yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. Yes, uh, it, it keep, as long as it's working, you keep doing it. But haven't Honda made the ultimate gesture towards their riders by saying, okay, we're changing the chassis concept, we're bringing a new bike, uh, you know, something that will suit Paul better, um so so why why hasn't it I mean, obviously mark has his own story but why why is why are we not seeing hondas near the front yeah i mean that's a another interesting point and it's not quite as simple as them still throwing all their their uh, resources just at mark because obviously due to what's happened since july 2020 they decided to try and build a bike for everyone this year uh, a bike that was more manageable for all its riders and certainly in the preseason it looked like they had succeeded and it was a bike that was going to work right across the board with Paul Espargaro on the podium at the first race one of the fastest guys through preseason and the fact that they did that meant that um, you know Mark was not able to ride the machine like he wanted and essentially is one of the reasons obviously physical aspect is a massive massive part as well but it's, it's certainly one of the reasons why he's taken a step away i mean if mark was on a bike that he felt could fight for the championship this year maybe he wouldn't have taken the decision to uh to move away so um you know the fact that honda changed its philosophy has bitten them again this year yeah but i wonder if that's also because there, there comes a point when you follow a particular direction where you reach the end of that direction with the technology because in the end they're reliant on the tires they're, they're reliant on how much they can manage the tires um and uh mark relied so much on the front and used the front so much uh that with the changes in you know bright height devices and aerodynamics and all the rest of it uh, the the there was just no more potential to be taken from the front tire, so they had to move it. I mean, the, these changes that they made to the bike weren't because Paul Espargaro asked for them. They were also because Mark Marquez asked for them. Mark also wanted more rear grip, um, and he understood that you know more rear grip means sacrificing some front grip, uh, and it's about finding the uh, finding the balance again. So it's it, it's very very difficult. But um, it, it, it's something that they had to do. And unfortunately, having Mark Marquez broken uh, means they've been completely unable to actually move the project forward. Well, we tried to make the Paddock Pass podcast for everybody, not just for Mr. David Emmett. So we'll uh, take a, another small break, actually, because Neil needs to contract um, Andrea De Vizioso and apologize for saying that he's in the throes of his career and the, the end is, is nigh. Because, uh, Neil, I'm sure that was like a, a stake to your own heart saying those words. It was, yeah. So if we could just take a break now, I'll, I'll wrestle that stake out of my uh, abdomen <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I can be back for part three. Back right after this. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. 
Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the final installment of this week's Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, Neil, did Dobby have anything to say to you? Uh, you know, did you contact him and apologize for your for your slant? I didn't. Your add, slight. I didn't. I know, but um, his uh, his press officer, his lovely press officer, has been in touch actually to say that I have one to one with him on Thursday. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. It should be good. Um, yeah, I, I mean, part of me wanted to do it before the summer break because there's a mild fear that. He might not be at Silverstone when we uh, when the series resumes again in uh, in uh, August. I think Dave, you asked him at the Barcelona test, will you be at Silverstone? He said, I think so. So I kind of thought, you know, maybe there's a slight chance that he might not turn up. So that was the that was the thinking behind. Yeah, him that's weekend. hardly yeah, that's hardly definitive, is it? You know, I think so. <laughs> Yeah, but not 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 only on the podcast he's saying he's reached the end of his career, but now you want him to finish even before the season's <laughs> over. He but wants getting. They said, it's look, getting worse. It, it's entirely it's entirely selfish from Neil. He wants him to finish just directly after. Basically, Neil wants to do the the exit interview. You know, like his last his last media <laughs> engagement will be a one to one with Neil Morrison. The mic drop. Exactly. <laughs> No, I think that might be the prime time to get your first selfie with a rider when you're <laughs> when you're having you're, you're on professional duty. Um, you know, we'll try and put it on the Paddock Pass podcast Twitter feed if it ever happens. Uh, Dave, on another subject, um, you would like to say that fortune kind of favours the brave, really, in MotoGP. Yeah, I mean, it, it really, it, it's carrying on from the same sort of subject. Uh, like Fabio Quartararo is completely dominating this championship and one of the reasons that he's dominating this championship is because everything is going his way um he's as Pecco said Fabio is the more complete rider he's the more complete rider because he's not making mistakes um but it's easier to actually make uh, to not make mistakes when everything is going your way if you think about what Banyaya has done. He's made sort of, you know, lots of mistakes, but also he's had, he's just had bad luck. Being taken out by Takanakagami, um, at Barcelona was just bad luck. There was nothing, um, uh, there's nothing that Banyaya could do about that, but it's always notable that it is, um, Fabio, that it was, that it was Pekka Banyaya who got taken out by, by Takanakagami and not Fabio Quartararo. Um, they were very close. They were both sort of, you know, uh, uh, close together going, going into the first corner. Uh, so it, it's just, it, it's something that I've noticed over several sort of championships that when champions get into a groove, then things just, you know, like the dice fall their way, whatever, whatever happens. Uh, and I think that is about being, having a mental state where you, um, because you don't have to take uh, as many risks, you understand your risks more, uh, uh, better. You can, you can take them more calmly and more clearly and more, more, more easily. You don't have to, you, you, you know, you don't have to gamble so much. And when you do gamble, then you gamble w- when you're playing a much stronger hand. You know, Dave, I do agree that it's indisputable that 90 points or 90 odd points are higher than 77. Uh, but the, the romantic part of me, you know, wants to believe that, you know, Bagnai can still do it. But I will be amazed if anyone has won the MotoGP title in recent years with four non-scores. Uh, from 10 rounds, that's what Peko suffered. So it's uh, to come back from that sort of deficit, like you say, is going to take a, a major sort of strike of fortune, um, you know, against Fabio Quattararo. Four non-scores plus scoring just one point in the arena in Indonesia. So, I mean, essentially five non-scores. Yeah, which is a 50, yeah, basically, you know, 50, 50% uh, 
uh, or close to a 50% zero score rate. Uh, you're not going to do, even if you have a fantastic championship, second half of the championship. And again, the, the one thing which uh, Quattro's rivals have in their favour is that it is still a very long championship. You know, there's 10 more races to go. That's still a lot of races. Um, so they're, 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 a lot of things can happen. But like I say, it's always remarkable that, that you know, things do just seem to fall uh, fall their way. Fabio Quattraro, what, what did he need to do at, uh, at Saxon Ring? He needed to qualify on the front row and he needed to, uh, to get a good start. And he did those two things. And once he did those two things... Then he could manage the race. Um, but that's also because his championship lead is such that he didn't necessarily need to win at the Saxon Ring. Second would have been fine. Second would have been great. Uh, uh, second would have been uh, a good result. Big haul of points. He would have been frustrated at not winning. Uh, but he still would have been in, in an even stronger situation in the championship. So, like I say... Fortune favors the brave. It also favors the um, the. It also favors the, the wealthy. You know, the 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 the, the uh, has this uh, has this has accumulated this uh, sort of mass of points and uh, this hoard of points, and he's sitting on his hoard of points, thinking about which uh, you know where can I afford to lose them? Where I, I don't need to. I don't need to take so many risks, uh, and I can afford to give away a few you know a few crumbs here and there. Uh, because it will gain me more in the long term. I think it was, uh, was it the golfer Gary Player who said the more he practiced, the luckier he got? Um, yeah, exactly. you know, maybe quite maybe Quattararo is just benefiting from having a very settled kind of package around him. There's, there's been no great overhaul, as we know, with the Yamaha. And it's a case of uh, uh, pick the cliche, you know, if it's not broke, then... Um, don't try to fix it or whatever. So that's that's really what he's... He's, he's reaping the, the benefits of that, I don't know... Um, Kind stability, of inactivity. Yeah, yeah, inactivity almost from Yamaha. Yeah, but I mean, look at look at what happened last year. Look at what look at the other side of the uh, of the factory Yamaha box in uh, in twenty twenty one when Quattararo won the championship. Uh, it, you know, we had the drama with uh, Maverick Vinales. With first of all, he's getting a new crew chief, and then they uh, get rid of the new crew chief, and then he uh, uh, he comes last at Saxon Ring and finishes on the podium in uh, in Assen. And then he uh, walks away, blows up the engine. Um, the, the, he, we see a succession of, uh, of replacement riders. Um, it was just an absolute mess in the uh, in the factory Yamaha team. But it but it didn't touch Fabio Quartararo. Quartararo just got his head down and settled it. And what was again really interesting to see Quartararo. Quartararo had a fantastic run of consistency right up until Misano when he won the championship, and then after that, um, his season. I wouldn't say it went to pieces, but you know, he suddenly had some really uh, quite poor results because he didn't need to. Basically, he didn't need to do anything. There was nothing left to prove. Um, the most amazing thing is he has this just incredible focus that all of and because he has this focus just on this one thing uh thinking about the end of the championship thinking about the uh, you know he's thinking about 2022 he's not thinking about Assen. he's not thinking about silverstone he's not thinking about any of the other uh, races he's just thinking about uh, uh you know that 2022 championship and the ga- that gives him a luxury it gives him mental space it gives his team mental space to actually set this up and and, and be successful it, it, it gives them room for error and because they have 
have room for errors, it's much easier to not make mistakes because you've got this, uh, yeah, like I say, you've got this sort of spare room. You don't have to risk all of the time. Whereas if Pekka Banyaya wants to uh, wants to win the championship, he's going to have to go all in at every single race. Uh, obviously, Fabio wants to win every race because that's what champions do. But if he doesn't win, it's not a disaster. Whereas for Pekko, every time he doesn't win, it's a disaster. For Enea, every time he doesn't win, it's a disaster. Uh, for Alicia Spargaro, you know, fourth. Uh, to me, uh, Alicia Spargaro is quite clearly the strongest challenger because, again, he. I think if you asked him, he would say that he had a bad race at the Saxon Ring, um, but he still finished fourth. He still got a whole load of points. Um, he still came away really, really strong. And the bad luck even when he has bad luck it's not um it's not soul destroying it's not you know it, it, it's not stopping his um, uh, um uh, his championship he, he he can still keep it rolling yeah spargaro's planted himself very much in the top 5 on a regular basis which is helping but then you do wonder if quattararo is going to have a race like a spargaro had where you know he didn't have a defective rear tire i mean michelin said they analyzed the front tire and they really couldn't find anything wrong with it but then uh, Spargaro just said that he couldn't race with it. I mean, he seemed quite agitated, uh, as we know that he tends to get um, when things don't go his way. And you do wonder if he does a warm-up lap on a front tyre that he feels comfortable with. Uh, he said he hadn't had a single issue throughout the whole Grand Prix weekend until they swapped out that tyre and put it in for the race. If Quattararo has something like that, um, in the past, it's just been freak things like his leathers coming undone. Um, you know, his Scorpion helmet visor flipped up in practice. That could have happened in the race and it would have been, you know, perhaps another issue for him with the thing flapping around. I mean, he potentially could have also been black flagged because that's something, you know, if it's part of your riding kit that's damaged, then it's uh, I think you have to come in and swap it or whatever. You can't keep riding around without a visor. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it, 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 like I say, it happened in practice doesn't matter it, it really doesn't matter and it reminds me a lot of uh i think two was it 2015 or 2016 where uh, at Magello, where um yamaha blew up both of their engines in their factory bikes uh, for both jorge lorenzo and for valentino rossi and uh what happens uh, lorenzo blows his engine in warm-up uh when it doesn't matter and Valentino Rossi blows it in the race when it does matter and loses a whole bunch of points. Um, luck just, you know, luck always plays a little bit of a, you know, it always plays a role in a championship, but there is a certain, uh, there, you can shape your luck to a certain extent when, you know, especially when you're sitting on a hoard of points. That was probably Rossi's last chance to win at Mugello as well, Dave. So there was extra poignancy around that bike blow up. Um, just on a tangent for a moment, I thought the shoulder cam footage um, on Quattararo's ride was superb um, in Saxon Ring. I mean, it was really quite revealing just how precise. And, you know, we saw some spectacular images coming into turn one externally where he was just sliding the thing in, you know, opposite lock uh, on the front wheel. But then when you see the shoulder cam footage, he just makes it look so simple. Um, it looks like a little, you know, soiree just uh, on your motorcycle on a nice sunny day. A little bit of a breeze, lots of people watching. Um, I thought it was amazing. In fact, um, for the next episode around Silverstone time, I'd like to get Alpine Stars' Chris Hillard quickly on the show just to talk us through, you know, the development of that technology and how it's um, really making a difference to the TV presentation. Uh, so far, we've only seen riders wearing Alpine Stars leathers with the shoulder cam. Um, so I wonder if that's going to become a little bit more prolific in the future. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I was really enjoying it as well until um, Azara Daniela, um, uh, my uh, MotoGP reporter, pointed out that um, you also get to see an awful lot of chin. And ever since then, you're like fixated. On, oh, yeah, God, there's his chin again. Uh, so it, it, it sort of uh, it, it ruined it a little, uh, little bit. But yeah, I mean, honestly, it's a fantastic. For, you really get a sense of the speed of the of the effort of the, uh, you know, just how far they are leaned over, just how close they are to the ground. It's uh, it's really great. It's slightly frustrating because you can't always see what they're what they're doing with their with their with the left hand and it would be very interesting to see what's going on, on the right hand but i bet that so the factories have said absolutely no way are you going to get to see where they're braking and accelerating yeah that's why uh, the camera of course poised onto the left shoulder and dave i mean you, you don't have to worry about any kind of chin cameras when you're sort of a young 20s you know <laughs> gp rider when you're a middle-aged journalist then it could be a you yes. know there's a serious the serious jowl problem but, yeah, um, yeah it, it, gp rider I don't exactly think that, a... <laughs> that's right it would be the the the, the chin counts would be considerably higher <laughs> Neil, just to wrap things up from the German Grand Prix, um, who was your winner from the weekend? My winner ad was the winner of the Model 3 race, Ethan Guevara, um, not just because he uh, I think now has five podiums in the points or because he's won his second race in succession in dominant fashion. Um, it's because of the manner in which he did it. I mean, um, Guevara's last couple of performances have been absolutely outstanding. Uh, they've shown that he has not just a kind of uh, an advantage of the rest. He's a clear advantage over the rest. And when you see that in Model 3, you normally know that it means something quite significant. Um, I think he was just under five seconds clear of Dennis Foggia um, at the Saxon ring. He was uh, 11.8 seconds under the Model 3 race record, which is absolutely astonishing, you know, on, on bikes that have had, you know, sort of minimal development over the last few years. And I think um, his race time was close to 20 seconds faster than Pedro Acosta's. Uh, winning time from 2021. Um, so what Ethan is doing with that little Asmar gas gas machine is quite remarkable. Um, and he seems to have found that sort of run now that it reminded me a little bit of, um, I mean, I don't want to build him up too much, but reminds me a little bit of, you know, when Mark Marquez eventually started winning uh, in this year in the 125 uh, CC Championship year in 2010. Once he got to that groove, he basically just became unstoppable. And, um, what Ethan is doing at the moment, I feel, has kind of hallmarks of that. So, you know, last year was Pedro Costa's year in Model 3. You do wonder on recent performances whether this year is going to be Ethan Guevara's, and he's still only 17 years old. Yeah, he's overshadowing his teammate as well. Sergio Garcia pretty much expected to go for the title. But um, like you say, Neil, it's his, uh, his teammate who's getting a lot of the plaudits. Um, for me, my winner was uh, Ralph Fernandez. Uh, you know, for, he's been largely kind of absent really from you know the top 10 and and a lot of praise I think in his MotoGP rookie year had a mysterious hand injury where nothing was broken but I think it kept counted him out of action for two races um you know coming back he said that he found some sort of feeling he wouldn't tell us what it was in warm-up on Sunday and then rode to 12th position which is his best finish in MotoGP yet um importantly he said that the feeling on the bike was the same as he had he felt like a you know himself from Moto2 in 2021 so um that was a, an important boost of form and I think it was the first time where we really saw some of that amazing talent that we charted all the way through last season in MotoGP so uh you know uh, props to Fernandez. Dave uh, coming over to you. 
Uh, well, first to go to Fernandez. Uh, on the plus side, he finished only 26 seconds behind, which is not bad. Uh, but on the uh, on the negative side, the riders he beat were Franco Morbidelli, Andrea Dovizioso, Remy Gardner, and Stefan Bradl. Um, I mean, the fact that he beat his teammate is uh, is very very positive. But uh, the others are hardly uh, challenging for the for the championship sort of thing. So it's it's a bit difficult to a bit difficult to say. Um, my winner uh, is Maverick Vinales uh, because he's been telling us now for about four races that if he can just put everything together, if he can just qualify well, then uh, you know he'll be able to have a good race. And he had a fantastic race. You know, he did qualify in a decent position for a change. Um, he had some serious battles. He showed that he's capable of fighting. Uh, he said after the start, you know, the start was like a jungle, and he was uh, ended up with um, with black marks all over his leathers. Um, uh, but yeah, he, he showed really what he was capable of. He showed just how strong he was. Uh, uh, sort of throughout the race um that for me was was impressive you so you feel that there has been sort of you know he's finally starting to show what he's capable of we have to see whether he can put it all together over the over a over a season but you sort of feel that you know a podium is coming and it's coming soon and it wouldn't be a surprise to see it maybe at Assen. It might, you know, again, Silverstone, another track he's really strong at. There's a few of these tracks coming up where, where you know he's going to be good. Um, uh, and if he can string together that qualifying, then really he's going to be, he, he's going to be quick. Yeah, I agree with you, Div. Two really good tracks coming up from Maverick. He's always been strong at Assen, always in every single Grand Prix class. Probably should be good here as well because it's a pretty agile machine and um, has been quite critical of Maverick so far this year, but that was a, that was a class ride from him on Sunday. Great to see him start reasonably well and actually overtaken riders on the first lap. And, um, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe second place wouldn't have been out of the question um, because he felt really confident that he was saving his tyre as well for the final push, and we know that that's usually his strongest part of the race. Um, so, yeah, great misfortune from him. Maybe we could have seen Maverick not just on the podium, maybe even in second. Yeah, don't forget, Neil, he's also extremely quick into turn one at Red Bull Ring, um, just as long as he goes with his motorcycle. <laughs> um, Dave, coming back to you, uh, who was your capital L loser from the German Grand Prix? Uh, it has to be Honda, um, because... Uh, they didn't score a single point, uh, despite having a, their, you know, d despite having their riders or having a rider finish. Uh, Stefan Bridal finishing 16th. Um, that was the first time, uh, disregarding, uh, Nogaro in France, which was, which riders boycotted. The last time they didn't score a single point was at Anders Torp in 1981, when I think Freddie Spencer either crashed or pulled out. Um, but that's, that's a long run. And it, for a start, it's an amazing streak. It is, a, it is an absolutely amazing streak of success to have 40 years where they were scoring points in every single race. Um, however, uh, the fact that um, Alex Marquez pulled out because of a uh, because his ride out device uh, failed. Obviously, Mark Marquez isn't uh, um, uh, isn't present. Uh, Paulus Gargaro pulled out because uh, he was just being well. He was being cooked by his bike, and he was completely destroyed after uh, trying to break himself in, a, in his crash on Friday. Um, uh, Takaaki Nakagami. Uh, 
crashed out again. Uh, Stefan Bradl, um, his boot was being cooked. All weekend you saw that they were, they were having massive problems with heat management with the bike because the exhausts, which come up on the right-hand side near the frame, was concentrating so much heat that they were sort of sticking, that they had uh, temperature sensors stuck to the side of the, uh, the side of the frames. They had silver foil all over the side of the frames trying to deflect it. They were doing all sorts of funky things with boots. I think um, uh, someone was using a, was using one of the riders, and I forget who, was using just ordinary off-the-shelf uh, road boots rather than the custom race boots because there was more padding and protection uh, with the with the production boots, and so it was keeping the heat off of them there. So, you know, the, when your bike is trying to kill you in that way, then generally you're in really bad shape. It's hard to believe that's uh, you know it's been created that way, Dave. That that kind of problem would surface you know with a grand prix machine yeah I mean, but it's, it's it, it, it always i mean like the the the, the ducatis they've been pretty good so far but even then uh they're notorious for catching fire i mean like literally they would come into the pits and if someone w- wasn't sort of there with a leaf blower to blow the uh, blow the heater out of the belly pan uh, the thing would catch fire just you could smell them i mean you can you, you could literally smell them coming into the pits that those exhausts get very very hot it's always funny when you see them on the dyno um you see those pictures with all the glowing exhaust you can't see it uh in normal conditions because it's too light but those exhausts get very 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 hot and uh, they're producing a huge amount of heat the the, the, the a, mo- a, a racing motorcycle is an incredibly uh, efficient m- machine for uh, turning fuel into energy, and uh, a lot of that energy esca- escapes of heat, and some of that heat gets stuck in the exhaust, and some of that heat then gets stuck into the rider. Yeah, for the second Grand Prix in a row, we had plus 30 degree temperatures and plus 50 degree track temperatures. So it's really testing the limits in terms of the thermo performance of the motorcycles. The loser for me, I'm going to say Luca Marini, purely because I couldn't pick two winners. Uh, and I don't think Marini's really getting the credit he deserves um, after <laughs> somewhat of a slow a slow start to the season. Um, you know, I think not only is a... Are, are you saying that it, Luca Marini isn't the loser? We're the losers for not recognizing what Luca Marini's doing. Potentially, Dave. Potentially. Yes. Yes. It's a kind of an indirect loser. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, he finished fifth. I think that was his best result. He's finished in the top six for the last three races after a pretty slow start to the season. But he had looked fast in preseason tests. And I think uh, the way that Marini presents himself, the way that he can talk um, about what he's doing, about some of the intricacies of MotoGP. Um, I think I can't remember who said it at the weekend. Was it you, Neil, that he could be like the new Andrea Davizioso in terms of his uh, insight that he gives us? Um, it's first class. And uh, for a rider, I think, who came into MotoGP with, you know, a label of um, nepotism, um, you know, Valentino Rossi's half-brother, uh, is he really going to be able to make the grade or is it just the fact that he's firmly entrenched inside the VR46 structure? Um, I think he's really showing that he's earned his place in MotoGP and I think he's sort of swiftly moving up the Ducati um, uh, ladder of, of talent they have there. Yep, absolutely. And it's the Marini way, isn't it? He's not the guy that comes in and wins a race on his debut or sets the fastest lap on his debut. It takes him time. He needs to understand everything and go very gradually, step by step, towards the limit of both himself and the package, of understanding with the machine and the package. Um, before he can really push and that maybe is a, is a more gradual process than a more 
uh, obvious and clear talent like I guess some of his you know some other guys that came up into the class with him like Ine Bastianini um, but I agree with Yad I think he's starting to look like a proper proper MotoGP rider and uh, I mean he was the pretty much the fastest guy on track right in those final seven or eight laps um, he managed his tires really well it was a really Marini-esque performance because he was looking at some of his rivals in those early laps spinning the rear tire just thinking what are you doing like this is not going to be conducive to a good end of race and he managed to just um remain composed and calm in the early laps even though he lost some positions and then make his way through towards the end so uh yeah i've also been uh, very very impressed with Marini in the last couple of weeks yeah, I mean, he's incredibly professor's uh, uh, impressive performance, but what's also impressive is the way that he can explain things to us. I mean, uh, we lost Casey Stoner, and then Andrea Devicioso took over explaining technical things with great precision and detail. Uh, Luca Marini is, is capable of doing the same thing, and it's fascinating just listening to him explain things because he's so good at analysing why a certain thing is happening and then explaining it to us, and he's willing to explain it to us, and that's that's great. Yeah, so please carry on being a loser, Luca Marini, or you know we, we'll stop we'll stop being losers towards you. So uh, Neil, just to wrap things up, who was um, your bottom of the barrel from the Saxon Ring? I mean, I guess it's it's maybe cruel to to say this considering everything that's going on this year, but I think Joanne Mir just. Um, I mean, this was a weekend that he had really good potential. He seemed to have found um, a cure for some of the issues he had been having in corner entry and breaking um, in recent races. I mean, obviously had a good fourth place in Barcelona, um, but, um, you know, had a mysterious vibration in qualifying, which hampered him. And, um, yeah, then he crashed out of the race, um, I think on the fourth lap, the same time as Banyaya had turned number one. Um, and, yeah, it's just, it's quickly deteriorating into a, a bit of a, not, a nothing season, really, for, for Joanne. A year that we thought maybe he could actually for the championship um it does seem that now the, the package and the bike is there and i know there's a whole host of of reasons you know but mainly the fact that his uh his manufacturer is withdrawing at the end of the year like that is a massive thing and i don't think we can really state how crucial that is in kind of the, the recent run of bad results however we're just seeing some mistakes from there recently and you know um yeah i don't think we've really seen any any evidence since um, since the flyaways at the first part of that year, the first part of this year, that um, Mir um, can be up there fighting for victories. So, um, yeah, I think Mir has to be the, the loser from Saxon Ring. Joanne Mir is Neil's sad sausage from the Saxon Ring, the last Frankfurter in the boiling water. No comment, I think, from Mr. Morrison. <laughs> Um, guys, moving on, round 11 coming up. Dave, uh, your home round, of course. Uh, it is at the TT Circuit Assen. It's not in a church. It's not in a chapel. It doesn't involve a spire or an altar. Um, there's no form of worship going on. So if anyone with a mediocrum of originality, please stop referring it to the lamest nickname in MotoGP apart from the Martinator. There's my <laughs> minor gripe over with. Other than that, I hope we have the same sort of weather that we've been seeing across large stretches of Europe this week. I hope Assen is dry. Um, what a fantastic racetrack. So much history as well. Um, sorry to say I'll be missing it. I'll be on holiday with the family, but um, you know, trying to check in perhaps for a Paddock Pass podcast note show at the weekend. Uh, we were flat out in Germany bringing insight every day 
from the racetrack right after the debrief what the riders have told us um you know about the events of each particular day so don't forget to join us there on the patreon channel if you want to get those regular updates uh we also appreciate feedback so please send us an email either through a comment on soundcloud uh you know through twitter or any other channels we can be reached um guys i think we're pretty much done for this week's show is there anything else we need to say uh no i just that you will do literally anything to avoid going to the don't going to the cathedral yeah there we go <laughs> so we've got half an hour into the show before it's mentioned and then we're finishing it i think it's a holiday is due and then uh, guys good luck getting getting to the end of the the grand prix and Assen because then a nice five week summer break for motor gb beckons and uh, won't we all appreciate that thanks for listening everybody we will be back right after Assen, or well maybe not in my case i hope steve english will be back on good form to talk to about talk to you about what happened in the latest round of motor gp this episode of the paddock pass podcast was produced by jensen beeler david emmett steve english neil morrison and adam wheeler it was edited by brian burnett music is provided by the liberty all inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com Has the, the Thai masseuse arrived a little early or what? <laughs> yes. You weren't you want supposed to hear that. <laughs> uh, thought, sorry, JP, that up. was just... I told him to come in after the podcast was finished. <laughs> sorry, JP, there's a, there's a little Filipino man who's just in the background in the room now, so we'll just um, we'll come back after that little interlude. <laughs>